0: Pasta, pizza, and where to find the best gelato. This week, we're in Rome, Italy. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're in Rome the city on everyone's bucket list. But instead of focusing on the best-known attractions, we're getting off the beaten path to find some culinary gems in the Eternal City with author, podcaster, and foodie tour guide Katie Parla. You know, I've been to Rome several times and I'm just as guilty as anyone of going to see all the major attractions. I think every time that we've been to Rome, we've gone to the Trevi Fountain. It's beautiful and The energy around the fountain is great, even if it's extremely touristy. But still, I return there again and again. But it's great to talk to someone who lives in Rome. Katie's originally from New Jersey, but she's been in Rome for almost 20 years now, so she knows all the great hidden spots, and she's written or edited over 30 books. Her most recent is Food of the Italian South, Recipes for Classic, Disappearing, and Lost Dishes, a Cookbook. She's also written a wonderful cookbook about Roman cuisine called Tasting Rome, Fresh Flavors and Forgotten Recipes from an Ancient City. And if that wasn't enough, Katie's a podcaster. Her podcaster is called Gala. We talk about Katie's favorite neighborhoods in Rome and the Monte Verde market, and we talk about pasta dishes that are quintessentially Roman, slabs of Roman pizza too, and why you should get fruit for desserts instead of tiramisu in Rome. We even talk about foraging for wild greens in Rome, and we talk about some of the immigrant community influencing Roman cuisine, like the thriving South Asian community and the Libyan Jews who've been making Rome their home since the 60s. But first, Help me get the word out about this podcast, share a link to the show on your social media, and proudly announce to the virtual world that you enjoy Destination Eat Drink. You can get a link at radiomisfits.com. Destination Eat Drink. Katie Parla, great to have you on the podcast. You know... Everyone has Rome on their bucket list, which is a great thing, but I think one of the problems with that is everyone goes to the same places that they have to check off, whether it's Sistine Chapel, the Colosseum, Trevi Fountain, and they just trot from these one required location to another without really getting a feel for Rome itself, which is why I'm so glad to be able to talk to you on the podcast today. Rome's a huge city. It's the largest city in Italy, and it's made up of all these fantastic neighborhoods that maybe people don't get to go to. So I thought first and foremost, let's talk about some of these neighborhoods in Rome that you love.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about the non-central neighborhoods in Rome and the central pockets that are off the radar in spite of their strategic location near monuments. You're right. Rome is a place where the uh, tourist path is well trodden. Um, but the great thing is that the center of town, that has all these wonderful monuments, is pretty compact. And the rest of the city, which accounts for well over 90% of the entire area, has amazing neighborhoods. Um, one of my favorite um, is Monte Verde Vecchio. Um, I'm a little bit biased because I've lived in that neighborhood for. <laughs> Six years.
0: Right. Cool. Um, I
1: don't. I. (laughs) I don't own any real estate, so I'm not trying to inflate prices (laughs) by uh, promoting it. Um, But it's this really gorgeous residential neighborhood. Um, The name Monte Verde means the green mountain. It's more of a hill. Vecchio means old, Um, and by Roman standards, it's not old at all. It was developed mainly in the teens and twenties. Um, and is one of the neighborhoods that has both apartment blocks as well as uh, villas, single-family home, and duplex villas. It's lush, it's green, and it's home to the sprawling Villa Pamphili Public Park, the largest in the city. I'm obsessed with it. It's amazing. Cool. And it's a great place to picnic. Um, another spectacular neighborhood is actually in the shadow of the Vatican. Um, just a couple of blocks from the busiest location in town um, is the Triomfale Market, which is the heart of the Triomfale District. And that's where I always start my mornings. Even though I live in Monteverdi Vecchio, which has two public markets of its own, I constantly go to the Triomfale Market because it is huge and sprawling and wonderful and has some of my favorite farm stalls um, and great fishmongers and just an overall amazing vibe. Um, and it's close to cool, delicious food that I want to eat um, at Panificio Bonci and Pizzarium. Uh, there's a great deli called La Tradizione. Um, there's an awesome wine shop. It's kind of my favorite food destination. Um, and you know, we can talk more about this. But in Rome, food isn't only consumed sitting down at a long restaurant meal. There's a lot of stuff that you eat on the fly. I love getting pastries at Panificio Bonci or a roast pork sandwich, um, heading to pizzarium having pizza by the slice, um, and then you know maybe save a full meal for, for dinner.
0: Oh, lots of great topics there. We got pizza, we got pastries, we got wine, but I want to ask you about this market itself because I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but it's worth talking about here because my favorite thing to do is go to one of these markets, pick out a few things, some cheese, some bread, maybe some wine, and have a picnic. So we can do this here at this market. Maybe tell us a couple of the, uh, maybe an indigenous cheese that we might get there. And then where would we go? Is there a place nearby that we can walk to where we could enjoy a picnic and maybe do some people watching, Katie?
1: So that's that's a really fun thing to do. There's a a really cool stall in the easternmost part of the market near the main entrance it's sandwiched between butchers but they don't have any fresh meat it's all cured meats and cheeses and i would look for pecorino romano which is made oh, of course um, well locally with the footnote that by law it can be made in southern tuscany and any uh county in sardinia but the pecorino romano that that stall carries is authentically made in the outskirts of rome i'd actually grab some bread you know, closer to the back, there's a, a stall that sells wood-fired uh, baked bread from uh, the hills outside of Rome. Oh, yeah. I'd also talking. get plenty of fruit. Um, and the vendors at the uh, western side uh, of the market are wonderful and have the rare opportunity of providing farm direct sales, which is not the norm in Italian markets. Most vendors are middlemen. They may sell a few of their own products, but At the Triumphale Market, the the light green banners in the stalls uh, signal that the stall is uh, run by a farm and most of the things on the counter are uh, of their own cultivation.
0: You bring up an interesting point because... Most of these guys, they're not the actual farmers. Maybe if you go to some of the smaller towns, you might be able to interact with some of the farmers. But a lot of these markets, they're not, they're not producer markets. So this market does have producers, which is fascinating to me, and I'm glad to hear it. So this is a place definitely that we have to go to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the romantic notion of Italy is that there's a lot of direct contact between farmers and customers. and that hasn't been the case for, in some places, a solid century. I mean, the food supply in Rome was streamlined by the government at the turn of the 20th century in order to elongate the supply chain, to actually create more stops for the food along the way from the farm to the consumer to generate jobs and introduce all sorts of economic policies, price controls, hygiene checks, Um, So this is a really rare opportunity to buy directly from
0: farms. And it shouldn't surprise people when they walk into a market and they see pineapples for sale that they're not dealing directly with the farmer who grew a pineapple because obviously no one's growing a pineapple in Italy.
1: True. And pineapples, in spite of the fact that they are not native are a beloved dessert fruit. So if you go to any trattoria, um, You know, naturally, the impulse is to get a very decadent dessert, um, some tiramisu, something, you know, that we dream of eating in Italy. But in reality, a lot of Italians don't go for the the heavy dairy rich dessert. They'll have ananas, pineapple, um, and every single trattoria has fresh fruit. Uh, It it varies except for the pineapple. Everyone's got it.
0: Do you have another favorite uh, neighborhood that folks should visit to get off the beaten path?
1: I really love Tor Pignatara, which is in the eastern part of Rome, heading away from the train station towards the Alban Hills, um, which are actually visible in the distance. There's the, there are these spent volcanoes um, about 15 miles outside the city. Tor Pignatara is not quite 15 miles away. It's, it's closer to two and a half miles or so from, uh, from the main train station and it's got a really wonderful trattoria called Osteria Bonelli. It's home to a really thriving south uh south Asian population. Um so it's very culturally diverse and it is traversed by ancient aqueduct ruins which cut through uh several of the public parks in the neighborhood. I just I absolutely love Torpignattara and it's uh on the Via Casilina, which is this ancient artery. That, uh, that slices through a lot of residential districts that aren't so monument-heavy, but they have a lot of uh, character.
0: Now, talk a little bit about, about this South Asian population in uh, Tor Pina Tara. Where are they from specifically, and do they have places where we can enjoy food?
1: Yeah, all along the Via Cazilina, um heading east, um, there are many South Asian uh, groceries and fast food stalls. Um, Rome is a city that has had a lot of immigration from all over the globe since antiquity. Um, and there are uh, quite a number of uh, Bangladeshi um, and uh, and Indian and Pakistani immigrants who are based in those neighborhoods or who travel to those neighborhoods to do commerce, to uh, do food shopping. Um, so there are lots of little takeaway places where you can also get uh, South Asian fast food, which might not be, On everyone's culinary radar when they visit Rome, but I always suggest veering out of the uh, carbonara and amatriciana cycle, as delicious as it is, (laughs) in order to patronize small businesses that really are a part of Rome's cultural fabric, in spite of not perhaps coming to mind when you think of dining in Italy.
0: That sounds like a great idea. I think I'd love to do that. This brings up the topic, of course, of transplanted cuisine, cuisine that's come from other places, whether it be by immigration or invaders or just via trade routes. Um, Now, I'm well aware of the uh, Roman Jewish cuisine, but could you talk about that a little bit? Because it's fascinating to me um, some of the different dishes that are on offer from the uh, Jews of Rome. Sure.
1: So Rome's uh, Jewish population is Fairly small, um, only about 14,000 members of the community, but has this really huge impact on Roman cuisine in general. Um, You know, mainly because the first Jews immigrated to Rome in the second century BC, and then um, over the course of centuries, adapted the local ingredients to adhere to um, the religious requirements, um, drawing on a lot of bitter greens and anchovies and uh, pork cuts of meat. And just like a wonderful, delicious array of things. Um, by the Renaissance, artichokes arrive with Spanish oh. uh, Jews or Sephardic Jews coming from uh, South Italy. They were expelled um, uh, in the 1490s um, as South Italy was under Spanish dominion. Right, right. Um, and so it's a very rich population that has so many culinary specialties to offer. The most famous for visitors is probably... Carchofi alla Judea, which is a, an artichoke that's had its outer leaves pruned and then it's poached in oil to cook it most of the way through. And then it's uh, fried in hotter oil to crisp up the leaves. Mm. Um, and then there are things like concha, which is uh, fried uh, vinegar, marinated zucchini, ali chotti and divia, uh, a sort of layered casserole of um, escarole uh, and, uh, and anchovies. Um, But the the community was enriched further with the arrival of a uh, of a diaspora community in the 1960s. The the uh, the last Jews left in Libya were evacuated mainly by the Italian government. And many were settled in Rome as as refugees um, in the Piazza Bologna district, um, which is not, you know, the 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 historic um, Jewish ghetto, which is most associated with Roman Jewish life. Right. Um, and that's right in the center of town. Uh, but it is a neighborhood that is um, in many ways more um, sort of contemporarily uh, Jewish in culture because the Jewish ghetto today is part of the center of Rome. Not many people live there. Um, it's sold a lot of businesses, but not a lot of sort of residential life. Um, that said, you can go to a number of uh, restaurants and pastry shops in the Jewish ghetto and try uh, Libyan Jewish uh, specialties like. Um, couscous with spicy fish, um, all sorts of like syrup-laced desserts, a lot of things that evoke North Africa um, much more than Rome.
0: When I think of North Africa, I think of going to Sicily to have couscous and raisins and things like that, but we can get it right in Rome. So I guess we can't talk about any place in Italy without talking about pasta. And the most famous pasta dish in Rome is Cacio e Pepe, most people know about this. I've talked about it on the program before, but there's other famous pasta dishes from Rome. Could you talk about a couple of those, what they're like, and maybe where we can get them?
1: Yeah, Rome has this uh, sort of canon of pasta dishes. Cacio e Pepe is super famous. So is amatriciana, carbonara, and gricia. And those three pastas are sort of built off the same base. All of them have guanciale, or cured pork jowl, some people use pancetta instead, which is cured pork belly. Um, carbonara is made further with um, uh, sort of barely cooked egg, um, either the whole egg or the yolk, depending on the cook,
0: mm-hmm.
1: black pepper and pecorino romano. Gricha is that guanciale or pancetta base uh, with black pepper and pecorino romano. And amatriciana <laughs> is the guanciale or pancetta base with tomato Um, Some people used onions, some shallots, some garlic, some use black pepper, some use chili. No one uses both. So (laughs) it's uh, that that's sort of your those are the big four. Right. But, you know, that's just what visitors hear about and what makes it into guidebooks. There are a lot of other pasta dishes that are really quintessentially Roman. Um, I'm thinking of rigatoni in the tomato sauce. That oxtails have been raised in. That's a really super common Roman dish. Um, so is uh, rigatoni with paillata, or the intestines of milk-fed veal, um, which are tied into rings and, and cooked, so they become these sort of almost ricotta sausages. Um, I realize that might not sound super appetizing to everyone, but I promise that it's delicious. And there's a you know a litany of other pasta dishes that would be on any menu of any Roman trattoria right beside uh, the carbonara, amatriciana, gricia, and cacio pepe.
0: So we've got pork and we've got intestines. What about for our vegetarian friends?
1: Well, you know, Italy is a place that's very friendly to vegetarians as long as you're aware that many people don't consider small pieces of pork. Right. to break any vegetarian rules. So you've got to inform yourself. Um, I mean, one of the awesome Roman, like very quick pasta dishes that is meat-free is uh, spaghetti with uh, garlic, oil, and chili. Cacio e pepe is vegetarian. Um, there aren't many vegetarian main dishes, but there are tons of uh, starters, uh, ricotta, mozzarella, fresh cheeses, and then so many vegetables and vegetables are not an afterthought in Roman culture, even though they are served after sometimes with, but often after your main, um, they are a really integral part of, uh, of the diet. Um, and it's not just fried artichokes, it's braised artichokes, it's hmm. simmered tender greens, lots and lots of uh, wild things that grow in the outskirts of the city.
0: You know, that reminds me of when we took a train from Rome over the mountains to Abruzzo. And just, you talk about the greens, just outside of Rome, we saw a transit worker. I could tell because he had the vest on, said that he worked for the rail company. But he was just wandering along the side of the tracks and he had like his vest kind of out and was picking what looked to me to be wild arugula maybe it was something else but it looked like wild arugula it
1: was probably chicory
0: chicory too could have been chicory yeah and just gathering it in his vest i thought this guy is brilliant you know he's 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 working right now but he's planning for dinner or maybe for lunch tomorrow with his fresh greens
1: you don't have to even go to the rail lines to do that you can harvest them in any park in rome the circus maximus is filled with them and there's there are wild chicories and Arugula all over the Forum and Palatine Hill, the Aventine, and definitely that park in my neighborhood that I mentioned earlier, yeah. the Villa Pumpfeely.
0: Okay. So go into Rome, put one thing on your checklist, forage for greens. Yeah, you shouldn't have to pay for your
1: vegetable side dish. Make it yourself, go go forage it. Awesome.
0: Now I want to talk about pizza because depending on where you go, um, I just I just talked to someone from Naples, and we did an episode about uh, pizza in Naples. Wherever you go in Italy, the pizza might be completely different. The pizza in Naples is different than the pizza in Sicily. Roman pizza is its own thing, uh, completely di- not completely, but different, different than the other kinds of pizza. And I think Roman pizza might be lesser known than some of these other kinds of pizza that we can get in Italy. So maybe talk about what is Roman pizza and how can we enjoy it when we're in the city?
1: Roman pizza really falls into uh, two categories um, with three styles for lack of a better term. So you've got your personal round pizza. That's roughly the same diameter as a Neapolitan pie, but it is stretched or rolled very thin. So it has almost no rim. um, And it's, you know, a bit crispy, so very, very different than the texture of Naples pizza. That you can eat at a wide array of places. I really like uh, Da Remo in Testaccio and I Marmi. Um, There's also a place in Cento Celle called 180 Grams Pizzeria Romana. And they do something that's a little bit more substantial, so not the super like wafer thin, um, but a slightly thicker crust using 180 grams of dough instead of sort of traditional 110 to 120. Um, and then the other the other uh, category is pizza by the slice mm. and that falls into two separate incarnations you can either go to a place like uh, pizzarium and get pizza by the slice cut in uh, rectangular pieces from a sheet pan right or you can go to a bakery and have pizza by the slice cut from a long oblong slab that's not cooked in any pan at all it's cooked Directly on the oven deck, um, and you can get pizza a la pala, which is the oblong bakery style, from whenever bakeries open, which is not quite as early as they do elsewhere. Um, and the pizza by the slice, cooked in the sheet pan, or uh, or pizza in teglia, is instead available from lunchtime to dinner time. And then at dinner time, that's tr- traditionally when you get the round pizza, the the thin crust uh, Roman pizza. So you can. Basically have uh, pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and be covered.
0: (laughs) And that's not a bad thing. You know, my my favorite thing to do is uh, at lunchtime, go get one of these slabs of rectangular pizza because you've got all the Roman office workers who are going into these places and they're getting their lunch and it's a very evocative atmosphere and a lot of fun. And where are some of your favorite places to go to get these slabs of pizza at lunchtime, Katie?
1: I go to the same places all the time. I go to Antico Forno Rocholi, um and Forno Campo dei Fiori. Those are right in the center of town, um, which you know, in typically most cities don't have a plethora of awesome places to eat right in the center. Right, right. Um, but in Rome, a lot of the cafes and uh, and bakeries are awesome because they don't exist for tourists. They exist to feed office workers and bureaucrats and people who have quick. Lunch breaks and meager uh, stipends, or are just after something really delicious. So, those are great spots to check out.
0: One other thing I want to talk about is uh, gelato. And I'm a self professed gelato snob. It always breaks my heart when people come back from Rome and say, Oh, we didn't care for the gelato. And I think. Maybe in Rome you have to work a little bit harder. You can get great gelato in Rome, but maybe you have to work a little bit harder. You're not going to find it next to, I don't know, the Colosseum. I've never had gelato next to the Colosseum. I'm making a generalization here.
1: You should not have gelato near the Colosseum.
0: (laughs) But I think maybe this is something that you could speak to is uh, about how to find a good gelato place in Rome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, as a visitor to Rome, I would like... I would abandon that. I want what I want when I want it <laughs> approach to things.
0: In other words, stop and being an know, American. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Like don't be so demanding. There's not going to be good gelato next to the Colosseum. Like that's crazy. Why would that happen? Um, you know, Rome, like other cities in Italy has a you know pretty vibrant gelato culture um, and gelato in Italy is cheap. So most places are making garbage because they're using palm oil emulsifiers dehydrated milk powder and all sorts of things that create an approximate sort of gelato texture and flavor, but are made with really rank ingredients. Um, and that's the majority of places. And there are, you know, thousands of gelateria in Rome. And, and I really only recommend about 20 of them because I can guarantee that they're using real milk and, uh, fresh fruits or quality chocolate, Um, you know, ingredients that have been Cultivated in a way that's respectful both to nature as well as the laborers, and the end result is really great. Otoleg, which is a funny name, but it's simply gelato spelled backwards, <laughs> oh, is <good>. yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's a weird name, but it's easy to remember if you remember that it's gelato backwards. Um, that place is amazing. Um, uh, Gori uh, up the Nomentana is great. Um, I really, really like uh, you know the the range of. Of almost savory nut based flavors at these spots. Uh, Gelato di Claudio Torche is wonderful. Um, And so there, you know, there are places that you can find awesome gelato. It's just unfortunately not the norm. And I think that's why people are surprised when they try it and they don't really like it. The, you know, an oil rich gelato is going to coat your palate. You're not gonna be able to taste much after that. Um, so no one likes that experience.
0: No, no, that's a sad gelato day. Um, for me, pistachio is the gold standard for gelato. If you can do a good pistachio, you probably know what you're doing. If it's not neon green, if it's got real pieces of pistachio in it, then you know it's a good gelato. What What are some of your favorite flavors of gelato, Katie?
1: I love pistachio too. I'm really into hazelnut. Um, oh, yeah. I love stra- stracciatella, which is just, it's um, basically milk-based, so not vanilla milk base, um, with chocolate chips. I don't, I also like don't discriminate when it comes to gelato. I am very agnostic <laughs> when it comes to flavor combinations and we'll take the suggestions of the people that work there. Definitely into, uh, also fruit sorbets, uh, in the winter time, something like a persimmon sorbet is incredible oh, yeah. in the summer, uh, fig. Mm-hmm. Oh, also this time of year is like full citrus season. So you get a lot of blood orange and uh, lemon sorbets those are awesome. So, you know, don't sleep on the sorbets when you go to
0: Rome. Good tip. I think a lot of people turn their nose up at sorbets, but if it's made with fresh fruit, boy, you can't have anything better than that. Um before we let you go, Katie, let's uh let's talk a little bit about wine because Rome is in the Lazio region of Italy. Lazio is not the best known wine region of Italy. When we go to Rome, are there local wines that we should look for? And what's the state of of winemaking in uh, in and around uh, the Roman area these days?
1: I mean, there's been wine production in the Roman outskirts for well over 2,000 years. Um, A lot of it, now, as historically, um, is really focused on bulk production because there's a guaranteed clientele in the capital. Um, There are some really cool vineyards. I love Ribella, R-I-B-E-L-A with an accent, and those wines are now exported to the States. It's a really tiny vineyard in a sort of volcanic crater just uh, southeast of town. Oh, nice. And they do some really fun white wines, some sparkling wines. I'm a big fan of the Cheseneze grape. Uh, based wines that are made further south uh, in the province of Frosinone. Basically, you cut through this area on your way to Naples when you're on the highway, and vineyards like La Viscola are making really, really delicious wines that go great with uh, the Roman classics, Pepe, Carbonara, etc. Mm. Um, and then up in Gradoli, um, which is on the sort of Tuscany border, not far from Umbria, you've got La Villana making really wonderful whites and reds. Um, and those are fantastic. And you can find some of these in uh, Trattoria, but also there's a, a a really, really great wine shop in Trastevere, not far from Otoleg. Hmm. Um, it has a French name, but it is very much an Italy-focused wine shop. It's called Le Vigneron, and they stock uh, you know all the Lazio wines that I want to drink.
0: So pick up some wine. Go over to the gelato place, get some gelato, and in my mind, you're set for the evening.
1: Ah, For dessert, at least. you got to get your (laughs) pacho pepe on. (laughs) Okay, good, good.
0: Well, Katie Parla, it's been delightful to talk to you about Rome. Thank you for helping us get off the beaten path in some of your favorite places in your adopted hometown, and it was just great talking to you. You too. Take care. Thanks so much. Wine, gelato, pasta, pizza, fresh food, is there anything else you need in this world? What a great conversation. I've got links to Katie's books, her website, and her podcast in the show notes at radiomisfits.com. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about my favorite coffee custom in all of the world. That's next week on the show. And while you're anxiously awaiting that, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got your travel needs covered with tips and foodie travel guides to dozens of cities around the world. This week on the blog, there's a story about Blitva a traditional Croatian dish I wrote about in my novel, Truffle Hunt. In the years since that novel's been published, I've changed the recipe a bit. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and chief pasta maker Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your and mask, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.